Hi, this is the podcast for the best bits of Breakfasters, week ending Friday the 20th of September. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on today's podcast, you're going to hear our conversation with uh, politics regular Toby Halligan about what's happening with climate change, inaction and action, uh, in response in particular to the bushfires that are been happening in uh, northern New South Wales and Queensland. And we also spoke to Anthony Lowenstein about his new book, Pills, Powder and Smoke. Uh, speaking of books, we um, had Elizabeth McCarthy in to review Here Until August by Josephine Rowe, which is a book of short stories. Uh, and also, Daniel's been getting free drinks all about town. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get a taste for it. I'm trying to get, I'm go get one tonight. <laughs> That's my challenge. Uh, Sally Rugg also swung by to chat about her book, How Powerful We Are, behind the scenes with one of Australia's leading activists. And our Friday funny bugger Matt Stewart came in. Triple R. The Prime Minister has the call. The opposition has a point of order. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Madam Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Madam Speaker. The level of interjections is far too high. Order. Order. Ahead of the global climate strike this Friday, three days before the UN Climate Summit in New York, Toby Halligan is in to discuss the politics of drought and climate change in Australia. Toby, Good morning, team. How are you all? Excellent. Very well. Fabulous. Absolutely delightful. Um, So you may have seen last week that there were 130 bushfires actually burning in Queensland and New South Wales. There's some news in the last day that about a number of those fires in Queensland in the Gold Coast hinterlands look to have been deliberately lit, probably by the same arsonist in the the fires kind of sprang up around it. Um, They presently don't know how many homes were lost in New South Wales, but it's looking like at least dozens. And Darwin was threatened, I think, over the last day or so by a number of bushfires, but they're now kind of downgrading um, those warnings. Um, Off the back of that, I kind of got in touch with the Bureau of Meteorology to actually try to unpack whether the conditions were as bad as they all looked, Um, and they, they frankly were. Like, it's been notable, I think how early these kinds of conditions have arrived this year. Like, it shocked a lot of fire chiefs. Um, Greg Mullins is an ex-chief of the New South Wales Fire Service, and he and 21 other ex-chiefs of SES organisations, fire service organisations in March came out and released a statement urging the government to take strong action on climate change and to put more... um, resources into emergency services and he was on the ABC uh, a couple of days ago talking about how challenging these conditions are. So on the 5th and 6th of September for example um, the temperatures in sections of New South Wales and Queensland were 10 degrees higher than they've ever been at this period of the year um, previously and the conditions that basically were kind of in the catastrophic rating so that's the rating that was introduced after Black Saturday and that effectively is a rating where um, homes can't be protected like they they say just get out you know there's no way of kind of remaining with your property and I hadn't actually it's hard to visualize what that means but he was explaining that the conditions in some of these really intense fires like uh, in one particular location uh, Morunday Gap um, the the winds were so high that they couldn't fly aircraft over it. You know, it's like Jesus. 110 kilometres per hour. Like, I think we've got this view of fire in Australia. And look, you know, lots, some people have more sophisticated views, but as something we have to deal with but can ultimately conquer, I think that changed a lot in Victoria around Black Saturday. But um, part of what we're going to be dealing with over the next coming years is uh, acknowledging the adaption gap 
between like what we can adapt to when it comes to climate change and the reality that we will just have to completely change how we live in a bunch of ways. Mm. Like um, Greg was also talking about how in New South Wales now, in a number of towns, there are three areas of New South Wales that by November, if they don't get a lot of rain, may actually run out of water. Like they will have no drinking water left. Um, and so they're going to have to start shipping water in. But because of that, in New South Wales, in a few towns, they've issued um, orders or guidelines if you just have one house that's on fire and it's not likely to cause other fires around it, that they have to preserve water. They actually can't go and fight it because yeah, they wow. just don't have enough drinking water. So they're the kind of structural adjustments that are beginning to... Another problem is um, uh, fire chiefs are beginning to predict that we're approaching the point where you're going to have simultaneously catastrophic fires in multiple states because the way effectively Australia's firefighting services are structured, it, it means that, you know, in, in Queensland there's a huge fire and, all, you know, lots of the people from Victoria and New South Wales kind of flood up there to try to help fight it. But we actually may not be able to continue doing that if you have conditions where in multiple states there are kind of catastrophic conditions. So in terms of how we adapt to that and respond to it, um, uh, people like Greg are talking about things like using bulldozers and graders to actually you know, change the topography of certain areas, like where you've got clusters of houses to, to protect those kinds of areas. Because if you can't fly planes over fires, like you actually can't fight them, you know, and it's too unsafe to put people in front of them. So, yeah, the conditions... Basically, the BOM also said that the conditions systematically, we've been receiving less rain over the last two years. Like, at historic lows, it looks like about 50% of Australia is going to receive below average rainfall. But those really high temperatures are also the thing that drives those kinds of really dangerous conditions. Mm. There's also the uh, <clears throat> the fact that we don't have our own water-bombing aircraft. Like, we lease it from the United States. Mm. So, because you mentioned the aircraft that it's too hot to fly and it made me think of Elvis. And mm. we, Elvis is an Australian. We lease it from the... Mm. from the states we should have our own elvis yeah, absolutely yeah yeah the melba or something <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah well like it's it's interesting and there will be like adjustments like that that'll make it easier to fight like we will adapt in certain kinds of ways but i think one of the other things that greg mullins and other people are beginning to talk about is the reality that we're not going to be able to live in a bunch of places you know mm. like there are well that's what i wanted to ask you because i mean doesn't this play into the politics of of geography and where we live yeah. we, we talk about the farmers who get ignored the people who live regionally and i think <clears> that black saturday spoke to the idea that there's communities even in victoria who kind of get ignored political when i think politically when i think about more well and places like mm-hmm. that and it kind of drew our attention to these areas again mm. um i don't know can you talk to that a little bit yeah well i mean increasingly councils have actually been using planning regulations to effectively say to people either they can't build on properties that are pre-existing or they can't build new properties so in new south wales for example there have been a number, number of quite big residential developments that basically councils have said, you can't go ahead with this because it's just too dangerous. Like, we cannot give you the services that you need to make this survivable or viable effectively because independently of the chances of the house actually being burned down or of the town encountering a catastrophic fire, because it's kind of an existential problem and insurance companies can't measure the risk, properties start becoming uninsurable in a lot of areas too. Mm. So... Um, and, and so this is kind of me interpreting what a number of people have said. You may wind up in a situation in the not-too-distant future where effectively 
you know, that people are told that they can't live in particular communities because mm. they are too dangerous. And yeah. what, what's your assessment of the Honourable David Littleproud? Uh, <laughs> Finally acknowledging that climate change... Yeah, <laughs> so he's the Minister for Water Resources, Drought, Rural Finance, Natural Disaster and Emergency Management. So he's writing you. There's well, a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, he's been out, out, out front of it, hasn't he? Really, really <laughs> owning the crisis. He, not long ago, he made comments that seemed like he was quite ambiguous about the role that climate change plays in drought and fire. I, oh, believe. I think it was, it was ambiguous about the role of man. Man, that's th- true. That I beg your pardon. Made, yeah. That's actually that's very fair. Um, he has now, I think, been slightly less ambiguous um, uh, around the role. Scott Morrison acknowledged he was up in Queensland. He acknowledged that climate change does play a role in this stuff. But I think when you've got twenty-two ex-fire chiefs, you know, literally experts, like you know, do saying, you, would you think the coalition are going to have to pivot more on on their approach then? Because if you've, if you've got this kind of pressure <coughs> from, I guess, a growing pressure from the Australian public and from people like this saying we need well we kind of want you to acknowledge do you think that's going to force them into acknowledging uh, i think if anything is going to it will be the threat of fire like and drought like effectively rural communities being rendered unsustainable um and that we're kind of approaching that point i think quicker than a lot of people anticipated one of the interesting uh, one I, one thing i would say is that and this has been an ongoing tension within the nationals in particular for a little while is that they've increasingly become a party supported by big agriculture and mining and they've tended to when it comes to big structural decisions like say whether to support fracking things like that gone with the miners and big agriculturalists over rural towns and areas in those communities. Um, That's a generalisation and it's not true of all nationals, but that's why in the New South Wales state election a number of national MPs got trounced by shooters and fishers. It was because when it comes to the Murray-Darling Basin, when it comes to just the focus on those actual communities, there's a sense that they've been forgotten. And, you know, it's easy to forget this when you kind of focus on the day-to-day clownery of federal politics, but um, the Bush doesn't really have, like you say, a consistent voice within the parliament. That did used to be the nationals. And so that's going to be a real problem, like whether those communities are able to be heard, um, because, as you say, I think they have an authentic voice within the debate. To be clear, activists and scientists, I think, do have an authentic voice, but they're a voice that can be ignored by the mainstream press. I don't think rural communities and firefighters will be for for much longer, and I don't think they are anymore. And we're going to potentially see more and more of these conditions. Mm. And more broadly as well, now Jackie Lambie is calling for a return to conscription to help (laughs) tackle drought and fires and floods. (gasps) I'm not going to lie. As I was kind of reading through a bunch of this stuff and thinking about how you adapt, like it may literally wind up being that... Like, So one of the problems they're facing in Queensland right now is there are so many fires that they've actually had to start devoting... Like they've hired teams specifically to deal with volunteer fatigue. Like people are just too exhausted, Mm. you know, and things are too dangerous. So we may have to actually kind of restructure sections of our society and economy to deal with the threat posed by fire and climate change. All right, Toby, thanks so much for wrapping your head around it. No worries, folks. Triple R. Anthony Lowenstein is a Jerusalem-based Australian journalist whose work is featured in a host of publications, including the Washington Post, BBC and New York Times. His new book, Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs, sees him travel across the globe investigating individuals, officials, activists, DEA agents and traffickers caught up in the grisly multi-billion dollar industry. And he joins us now. Anthony Lowenstein, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. Uh, now, where and how long did this investigation take you? What were you looking for? So I've done this book for about five years and I travelled over that time to a number of countries, um, Honduras, Guinea-Bissau, which is in West Africa, 
Philippines, US, UK, Australia. And in the first three places particularly, I was looking at, A, in Honduras, the majority of cocaine going into the US goes via Honduras from Colombia and Venezuela. And the use of cocaine in the US and Australia is insane. Massive, growing, popular. Obviously in Australia, cocaine is pretty expensive. In the US, it's much cheaper. But the fact, the fact that you have so much cocaine going into the US and there's so much demand, it means it has to get there somehow. And the coca plant's not being grown in the US. It's being grown in South America. So Honduras has become this apocalyptic um, landscape where violence is out of control, has one of the highest murder rates in the world outside a traditional war zone. And I was there interviewing a lot of people who not just were caught up in the drug war but whose lives were a misery. So, for example, there's something in Honduras called a war tax, which means, which is also happening in other nearby countries. So if you want to start a business, whether it's a um, stall on the side of the road, a shop, whatever, you have to pay one gang, two gangs, three gangs of weekly fee. Um, and if you don't, they will shoot you dead. It is literally as simple as that. I've seen footage of bus drivers who didn't pay a fee. A gang member comes on the bus while it's driving and they're shot dead. Mm. And yes, people mostly survive on the bus in case people are wondering, but this is the daily reality for people. And the fact that a massive demand for drugs almost guarantees that it be an incredibly ugly trafficking route and which is why i'm calling for legalizing all drugs that we can get to anyway guinea bissau west africa most cocaine going to europe goes via this west african country to transit country and philippines as some listeners will be aware has had a very very brutal drug war in the last two and a half years with rodrigo duterte the president there's probably been around thirty thousand people murdered mostly by police and vigilantes in that time these are low level drug users mostly taking something called shabu, which is an methamphetamine. And people are taking it there mostly for, in my view, very good reasons. Not that I think people should be taking um, those drugs, but life there is bloody hard. And to get through the day, to do manual labour, to be a sex worker, whatever your life is there, in the, I'm talking about people who are poor, but the, the war on drugs there and everywhere I've looked at really is a war on the poor. It always has been. And in the Philippines and everywhere else, rarely are high-level drug dealers gone after. The drug war is never about that. Yes, you do see in the media now and then high-level drug leaders or cartels imprisoned. For sure it happens. But the majority of cases, what the drug war, and this is what I try to examine in the book, including here in Australia, has always been a way to control the drug market from the government's perspective rather than to try to end drug use. I mean, Australians have one of the highest per capita drug uses in the world. We spend roughly... Last year, $10 billion on illegal drugs. Illegal meaning cannabis, coke, um, ice, heroin. Huge amounts of money. And my view is I've got no problem with with people taking drugs. I think it should be a legalised and regulated system rather than an illegal one. But when you make it illegal, you don't know what you're taking. And often that's the problem, that we, we have a system here where growing numbers of the population are using drugs. It's a normal part of life. Most people who take drugs have no trouble with it. They use it regularly, daily, parties, whatever it is. Mm. There's a minority of people who have problems with drugs for a range of reasons, family breakdowns, crisis, and that those people need to be assisted, to be sure. But when you criminalise drug use, and I, I would say often drug users, then you almost guarantee 
an incredibly unhealthy reality for those kinds of people in society. And so the law, in my view, hasn't caught up with public opinion. So mm. it's been a five-year pretty heavy journey. Yeah. <laughs> and Nixon coined the term? Nixon coined the term. So I talk about this in the book. The drug war's been gone, going on for arguably 100 years and often it was really started as a basis for deep racism. So in the US, for example, Mexicans were coming into the US about 100 or so years ago, a bit more than that, and the white population and media would frame it as these Mexicans are coming in and going to be seducing our white women and using opium to do so. We have to control these people and these drugs. In Australia, it was the fear of Chinese um, apparently coming to seduce white women. There's a theme here, right? The sense Mm. that our women, so to speak, are being defiled by these outsiders. And you fast forward 100 years and maybe now we're not going after the Chinese so much, although we're still going after the Mexicans in the US, Trump is certainly, but you still see a demonisation of certain kinds of drugs and the people who are using them. So the drug war was coined by Nixon in the early 70s and it's been really continued successively by virtually every president. Obama was the only president, and I discuss this in the book, who to some extent tried to moderate the drug war domestically and globally. But in the end... Um, we now have a Donald Trump as president. He may well win next year, God help us. And those very hardline policies will continue. But the only there, there is some hope. In the US, for example, now pretty much all the leading Democratic candidates for president for 2020 adv- advocate legalising cannabis, reparations for communities that suffered because of the drug war. That's normally people of colour, African-Americans, Latinos and huge investment in those communities and allowing those people, if they want to get involved in the cannabis industry legally, to do so, um, to make you know, to make money or whatever they want to do. So that is a shift. That didn't, happen, that didn't happen in 2016 with the election and is happening next year. Now the Democrats might lose. Sure, we don't know. But there is a societal shift and public opinion in the US shows that the majority of Americans support legalising marijuana. And there's a growing acceptance in the US and here that large numbers of people now are aware that using psychedelic drugs, talking about ecstasy, LSD, magic mushrooms, putting aside people enjoying it just at a party, and that, I've got no problem with that, but putting that issue aside for medicinal reasons. So there's huge evidence now, and John Hopkins University in the US just in fact recently announced the world's biggest centre for studies of psychedelic drugs to look at people who might be depressed or on PTSD, or people who are near the end of their life. And the studies have shown that people could be using some of these kinds of drugs in controlled environments to manage those problems. The results are amazing. So it seems it's almost like when you have lovely, nice, middle-class people using <laughs> some kinds of drugs, it becomes far more societally accepted. And not that everyone has to be middle-class to use those drugs, of course, but that's often the way that <clears throat> it's framed in our society. So I think it, although those drugs, ecstasy remains illegal... And it's hard to see ecstasy, for example, being legal in Australia next week. That's true. But you'd be amazed how the US, despite being an incredibly brutal society around drugs, is far more open at some levels to imagining a doctor prescribing you ecstasy and a therapist using those drugs to help you. I mean, that is a very possible, viable reality within five or ten years. And in Australia although maybe it's a bit further behind. That's happening already now. There are doctors in Melbourne, therapists, using these drugs with patients. They're not going to announce it probably because they're worried they might get raided by the police, but this is happening. And these drugs have been around for decades, and yet it's only now that we're finally seeing 
res- uh, respectable scientific studies showing that they can actually also have medicinal purposes, like with cannabis. So that to me is a positive shift. We, sorry, uh, talking about the narrative of drugs, mm-hmm. um, you know, the media certainly portrays that, um, you know, that there isn't a lot of drug taking and I think a lot more people take drugs than the media would portray and then there's the narrative around, um, you know, certainly more people are taking cocaine than they would be taking ice, yet there is an ice epidemic. Yes. Um, so how do we, how do we, what do we do to change the narrative around that? One of the things I talk about in the book is how, and I'm obviously a journalist, so I'm in the media, but I often loathe my own profession because too often in Australia, a lot of countries, and this includes the ABC, it's not just the tabloids, mm. in Melbourne, the Herald Sun or whatever, it's a lot of media, routinely allow the police to essentially publish a press release. So we've all seen stories, including on ABC, we've got the biggest ice bust ever. We've got the biggest cocaine bust ever. And you go, okay, great. And, and what? And, and so what? And what's your point? What's what's the story here? That yes, you're getting a lot of ice or cocaine. Okay, does that have any impact on supply? I like or how use? they they deliver the like a cat delivering a bird to the front yes. doorstep. Yes, yes. <laughs> he's this giant pile of drugs for sure. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think a legalized, regulated system should go after violent drug cartels. I'm not saying we should cut all those people off, and they're very awful human beings. But the problem is that those stories often are published or broadcast as somehow showing what we're fighting the drug war any police you speak to and this includes um, people i've spoken to mostly off the record mick palmer who used to run the australian federal police hardly a radical lefty worked under john howard mostly i was doing an event with him recently at melbourne town hall he says we knew when we were running the afp and even now more so that the drug war is lost everyone knows it we're making no impact on supply no matter how many shipments we get of ice or whatever so i think it's changing public opinion by partly showing that not everyone who takes drugs somehow is lying in the street dying those people exist and i'm not minimizing that we shouldn't provide far more support to those people but that too often the people who are dying from drugs bad ecstasy pills or whatever are getting because we don't know what's in them or heroin whatever it may be so a legalized regulated system in australia you would know what's in the drugs. They wouldn't be simply available, you know, heroin next to your veggies at the supermarket. That's obvious, but let me just say that. Mm. It would be available potentially via a doctor or via a pharmacy. Cannabis would be more available for sure. And one of the problems, as some listeners will be aware, is that often cannabis these days, this synthetic cannabis, there can be really strong, I would say, unhealthily strong cannabis that exists out there and can often screw people up. And in a regulated system, I'm not saying that would not be available, but it would be far less likely to be around because a regulated system would only, whether cannabis is produced by the state or a accepted private company, you would know what's in the drug, you know what's likely to happen. And that would be the same with cocaine or heroin as well. So, yes, there's no doubt that a lot of media has a lot to answer for, but I do think that there is, we need to just keep on reminding people, and public opinion also is out there, that... At the moment, as I said, you have a lot of people taking drugs. So there might be that media saying all these awful things about these apparently terrible people taking drugs, but the reality is a lot of people are using it anyway. They're ignoring those kind of messages. So politicians, I think, are as often. This is across the board, by the way. It's not particularly against the federal liberal government who, are yes, are fairly draconian. Federal Labor ain't that much better. Mm. Do you think um, the ethics of where our drugs come from 
plays a part in this because more than ever before we are conscious of where our coffee comes from our chocolate comes from yet we don't ask where our cocaine comes from on the weekend i mean yes in a word absolutely and this is one of the things i i talk about in the book and i when i get a chance advocate there should be a real movement around ethically sourced cocaine now what that means clearly is that at the moment as you rightly say people are so passionate um I'm sure particularly Triple R listeners, of where their food comes from and maybe their shoes, if they're vegan, whatever. And I, that's great. Go for it, guys. But why aren't we asking questions about where our drugs are coming from? Cocaine is not being grown in Australia. And one of the reasons I went to some of these places overseas was to say, these are the people who are suffering for our pleasure. I mean, that's the reality. And they're not benefiting from wonderfully lovely cocaine. They're not. And an ethically sourced cocaine would mean that everybody along the supply chain, from the farmer to everyone else, would be supported and given a decent wage. Now, at the moment, it's hard to imagine that, I acknowledge, because cocaine is illegal. But in the recent global drug survey, which is the world's biggest drug survey, 130,000 people around the world are interviewed roughly every year online. And this year, for the first time, it comes out of the UK, but a lot of Aussies are... answer questions about this as well first time ever the question was asked would you be interested in ethically sourced cocaine majority by far said yes would you be willing to pay more for that the majority said yes how much 25 percent more now some people might say well you're never going to have a a legalized cocaine market in australia sure it sounds maybe right now at least quite odd but I do think thinking far more about where our drugs come from is a reasonable thing to do when drugs are being consumed in Australia at an unbelievably high rate. Even though cocaine, from what I understand, is at least $300 a gram, it's hardly a poor person's drug. It's yeah. expensive. In the UK, it's way, way cheaper. And of course, in South America, it's you know a couple of dollars. So Australians, at least some, mostly middle class, I guess, with that amount of money, are spending a lot of money on coke. And I suspect most of them ain't thinking that much where it's coming from, including here in Melbourne, mm. and they should. Uh, can you speak a little bit about the logistics of putting a book like this together, the, the, fi- the fixes that you must enlist, the safety, the communication constraints? How vulnerable are you in a project like this? You feel vulnerable. I mean, in places like Honduras, it's, as I said, a very violent country. I had local fixes, for those who don't know, is a local journalist that foreign journalists will pay to help you get around. Um, you pay them a daily fee. I spent months trying to find someone who I could trust because when you're on the ground there, you really, to some extent, are in their hands. Um, I spoke to other journalists who had been to Honduras, asked them who to recommend. And I did this also with, when I'd been to places like Afghanistan a number of times where and Afghanistan was scarier, but Honduras particularly was the scariest place for this book because you felt vulnerable and exposed there wasn't so much the threat there as there is in afghanistan save a suicide bombing at a cafe or you know islamist violence that doesn't really exist there sort of muslim extremism but what does exist is absolutely rampant um police corruption and violence and a culture of impunity so there are a number of times where i was with my local fixer we're driving around we get pulled over by the police they draw their weapons um they didn't put guns to our heads but it's a deeply threatening environment now. Did I think I was going to die? I didn't feel like I was about to die, but the number of times where I thought, this is not looking that great. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I want to say that I don't want to portray myself as, you know, I'm the crusading <laughs> hero journalist. I mean, yes, I went to these places and yes, I write about them and 
I was just in Nigeria a few months ago doing a film for Al Jazeera and we went to Boko Haram territory in the north looking at the massive use of opioid drugs like tramadol, which is a legal drug, which is available here, which is being abused in Nigeria, one of the worst in the world, and it's fueling the insurgency. And you go up to these places and it's scary, to be sure. But the people who are suffering the most are not the journalists, as in the foreign journalists. We can leave and we do leave. We visit there. We, In my view, I always treat people with respect and as a journalist, unlike I think too many others often who don't give credit to local journalists on the ground without whom you would not be going to these places and getting access to them. I thank them in the book. I'm in regular contact with them. They are often, they're much more exposed than, than we are as Westerners and I think that should be credited. And from Honduras to somewhere a little more sedate, Canberra, uh, what, what do you see coming out of Canberra, the, 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 the drug testing for welfare recipients, mm. Even in the ACT, pill testing, what, what's your handle on the Australian domestic situation? So uh, domestically, ACT probably is the most progressive state on drugs in the country, has been for a long time. As you rightly say, in the last year and a half, they've had um, two official drug uh, pill testing events at music festivals, um, supported by the police and the government, and the evidence for that is overwhelmingly successful. Um, bad pills were found, ecstasy pills, no one died. Um, those pills were thrown away and there was education given that, you know, bring your pills to us, we'll test them and if they're bad, we'll get rid of them. I mean, that is a logical system and in my view, there should be government mandated. There sh- it should be illegal not to have pill testing and I'm very disappointed that our, our your Premier <laughs> in, this, in Victoria, who finally did come around to a safety injecting facility, frankly, took him far too long, is weirdly completely ignorantly saying he refuses to accept pill testing. The evidence is overwhelming for that, and Victoria should introduce that yesterday. It's Mm -hmm. insane. Um, Canberra, federally speaking, is a less pretty picture. Yes, welfare, the idea of drug testing welfare recipients is a draconian policy. It doesn't work. It often makes people go further into poverty and um, depression. Nowhere in the world this has worked. And... It's disappointing, although unsurprising, the government's, federal government's trying to do this. I think the next logical, likely step, I sort of compare this to there needs to be a kind of like the same-sex marriage campaign in Australia. We can argue about whether the plebiscite was the right way to do it, and that's a different argument, but that was the decision the government made and there was a vote. Okay. Majority of Australians said, yes, we support same-sex marriage. It's now legal. I'm not saying the system is now perfect, but it's a legal thing. And I think that there needs to be a similarly large campaign for legalising cannabis and pill testing. And politicians could still ignore it, but I do think that that sort of sheer numbers of people makes it difficult, particularly for some, maybe on the Labor side, to ignore it. Right now, Labor doesn't want to go there. Mm. Talk about drugs, ignore drugs, take drugs, smoke drugs, snort drugs. No one wants to go there. And it'd be nice and honest if a number of politicians and judges and others who are involved in this issue, I want to see a public campaign of those people saying our drug laws are insane, A, but B, we've taken drugs, I use drugs, my kid uses ecstasy and he or she is fine, or even if they are not fine, let's have a lot more honesty in the drug debate because without that people are going to keep on dying. All right. Well, pills, powder and smoke inside the bloody war on drugs is Andy Lowenstein's contribution to the debate. It's out now through Scribe. And uh, thank you so very much for coming in. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Triple R.
Sorry, that was dramatic. Well, the great Elizabeth McCarthy is back where she belongs, reviewing books on breakfasts. Hi. Hi. Sorry about last week when I... Uh, what happened? I didn't set my alarm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, back in the saddle this week um, to review Australian writer Josephine's Ro- Josephine Rose's short story collection here until August. Now... The short story form isn't one that I really grasp for when it comes to fiction, as I tend to prefer novels as a form of storytelling. Generally speaking, I want my stories long and involved and not constricted by word counts and a feeling of being left high and dry, um, which sometimes can happen with short stories. Mm. Sentence by sentence, they can be beautifully written. Uh, However, because of word count constraints, they can leave you feeling bereft. And I have often finished short stories feeling, how arty, you've just left me hanging off a cliff when I have so many unanswered questions. Mm. And um, and I actually think the short story form... Like you really have to be a master of short stories to of, of writing to actually write a good short story. It's it's not a form where I don't know when I when I studied writing many years ago. It was always like you teach the students to write short stories so that they can then go on to write novels. And to my thinking, I I don't I don't necessarily see novels as harder than short stories. I think they're both really difficult in their own way. Mm. Um, do you guys read many short stories? Uh, I have have done so in no. <laughs> There's a lot of short fiction. Yeah, in the New Yorker that I read. Yes, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I do. Uh, it's hard. Like, uh, I'm with you a little bit. I I'm kind of on the fence. I I can see that it's a skill, but you know, if I'm going to invest in a story, I kind of want to be. I want to have a full meal rather mm. than just the first three courses of a degustation. Mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's all about and food if with you me, look, sorry. Whereas if you look at other art forms, like people love a three-minute song. Yeah. And some people have yeah. no patience for a whole album. You know, they just they'll buy an album and only listen to a few tracks. If you look at things like films, I would argue that short films really don't have an audience um, compared to feature films. Mm. Half-hour sitcoms absolutely have an audience, um, as do you know ninety-minute. Um, feature films, comedy feature films. Anyway, let's get back to Josephine Rowe. Um, So I wanted to advise you that when you see a short story collection or a short story with Josephine Rowe's name attached to it, read it because she knows how to write a short story. Um, She writes characters that are interesting, unusual yet universal. Her plots are unexpected yet really smoothly executed and sentence by sentence she is an absolute joy to read. And this collection is a really finely tuned, accomplished set of short stories and she is, well it's no surprise, she's a writer's writer. So um, endorsements from Australia's literary heavyweight, literary heavyweights such as Michelle de Cresta, Maxine Benneber-Clark, Jennifer Mills, Wayne McCauley, Kate Holden... Um, all over this novel, all over this book rather, Um, and it's not hard to see why. They're not just writing these endorsements as sort of, you know, a favour for a mate or anything. These these sort of pats on the back from her contemporaries are are really well-deserved. So one of the impressive things about this collection and the way that Josephine Rowe tells stories is how she convincingly inhabits all sorts of characters. So she writes from the perspective of men and women, from gay and straight, 
Um, she does so with this sort of flu- fluidity and conviction and uh, th- there's never a sense that Josephine Rose sits at her desk and thinks, I'm going to write a male character today. That means I need to write in a sort of stereotypically macho way mm-hmm. or there's no sense that, you know, I'm going to write from the perspective of a female taxi driver. That means I have to make her salt of the earth. This this isn't sort of going on. And that is, I think, when, you, when you're a writer inhabiting all sorts of characters from all sorts of walks of life, I imagine it is incredibly difficult to do that um, convincingly, it, it's a very sort of ambitious enterprise that she undertakes with this, the the all the different characters that she inhabits. Mm. I want to modify my opinion. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it, it was, it, I don't know if I can allow that. <laughs> um, short stories. Uh, I think I'm a mad for comic short stories, like oh. J- James Thurber, S.J. Perelman. Um, Dorothy Parker mm. and any a novel length comic story, it's t- it's too much to maintain. So I love oh, the. What about Catch Twenty Two, Joseph Heller? Oh, or Steve, yeah. Steve, have you read Steve Tolt's um, yeah, yeah. Quicksand? Yeah, like, that, that's that book is that absolutely, thick and you'll laugh and cry. And right that's why the way. when when it's achieved, it's extraordinary. Yes. but it's very difficult to achieve. So there's not so many of them. Exactly. Uh, whereas there are a lot of funny short stories. Yes. I would like more humour in fiction generally. Yeah, I think right. serious novels, there's too many serious novels. Well, mm. I, I would love writers to write more more comedy. Like it's, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's very unusual, isn't I, it? I read a short story by Jonathan Franzen mm. and he was trying to be funny. Oh, boy. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Like he... It felt flat, Danny. It, did it. Whoa! Did it fall flat? <laughs> and it was so. I was so happy to see an extraordinary writer try and fail to be funny. Wow. Because that's the kind of guy you are. <laughs> no, really inside is no, your No, no, but it's like, oh, good. You know, it's, it's when people. You're not good at everything. Yeah, you're not good at everything. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you don't like the all rounders, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um. So the, the two standout stories in this quite serious, but it has moments of sort of. Um, Rye humour, sort of, you know, he's smirking. You're not ever laughing out loud. But um, the two stories that stand out in this collection are one story called Glisk and the other one called The Mu- the Once Drowned Man. And so in Glisk, she's writing about two estranged brothers hanging out together after many years apart. And they're both skirting around talking about something that happened many years ago um, where some people died. And so um, there's an unresolved history, there's tension, they're trying to kind of behave like everything's okay and... um, And one of them isn't being completely honest about this accident that happened many years ago and the other one has suspicions about the official story. So you're sort of reading about these two brothers and, and yeah, she knows how to create suspense, she knows how to write compelling characters and she also knows how to finish off a short story in a way that is satisfying. Wow. Yes, and The Once Drowned Man, which is probably my favourite in the collection because it's very unusual. It's a, it's a story of a taxi driver in Canada picking up a passenger who's behaving very strangely. And yet the driver is intrigued because she is bored enough in her job that she ends up driving him 
towards the US border because he, he's trying to convince her to go over the border with him um, and he probably can't pay and she sort of knows this because he's behaving so oddly. She drops him at a bank at one point and he, she can see him through the glass basically, you know, for half an hour trying to sort of talk the bankers into giving <laughs> him some money that, that clearly he doesn't have. Um, so that that's an example to my mind of a story that in the hands of a lesser writer you'd be going, this is just silly as if this would happen. And yet because she knows how to write characters with um, well-rounded characters Mm. doing unusual things, it it ends up very convincing. Mm. Is there anything uh, in it that you think could expand? Like, you know, Brokeback Mountain started as a short story and the life of Walter Mitty was a very tiny story. These these stories are set all over the world. Um, There's a married couple who occasionally get out an old sex tape they made in their youth in order to spice up their middle-aged sex life. There's another story where a woman is just watching terrorist videos while she's minding um, a dog (laughs) for a friend. Um, And I love this. So, so... I, I can't see why these wouldn't have some kind of cinematic or televisual potential, yeah, right. Daniel. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, so it's it's really impressive writing and short stories. You know, I also think it's a collection that you wouldn't read each story back to back. I think after each story, you need to pause and maybe you know read one a day or or what have and you. And here until August refers to something. Something that I won't go into. Yeah, 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 cool. Mm. All right, that's by Josephine Rowe. Josephine Rowe here until August. Highly recommend it. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It's been an exciting week for all of the breakfasters. Oh, isn't it? Different reasons, different mm. different things going on. Sarah, I think your uh, biggest thing in your life at the moment is... Football. Yeah. It's really sad, isn't it? No. It's not, well, been, it's not much been happening. Sort of a quiet time. Yeah, but no, tell us about the exciting stuff. No one cares about the non-exciting All stuff. All right, great. But you, I just want, uh, this uh, is your permission. We're giving you permission to uh, let it out. And, well, I know. don't know if you've heard, but the Richmond Tigers are in another preliminary final. Mm-hmm. Uh, very excited. There's a lot of nerves because last year we were in the prelim against the Pies and uh, lost in fairly spectacular fashion, which was disappointing. Uh, so this Friday we're preparing again. So me and uh, my Tiger girls who I often go to the football with are preparing a day, a special day to go to the prelim. So last year this involved going early down to Rowena Parade. Yes. Uh, just near Punt Road and hanging out at the local cafe there and – and this is where there's a big um, mural of Dusty. Yeah, the big mural of Dusty. So we went and paid our respects, mm-hmm. had a photo, and then kind of sat and like ate food and drank milkshakes while all the Richmond people were kind of milling around. And people would just walk past in Tiger's clothes and stop and talk. And we did this for a few hours before the game. Perfect. Yeah. You go to, there's no training sessions and stuff that you're going to in the leader. No, I don't think this week. I don't think there is this week. If we make the grand final, there'll be the open training again. Um, but no, I don't think there is one on Friday morning, unless I just can't get to it and I can't remember that. But we're going to do a big kind of tour of Richmond again. Get the training. We think we need to break the jinx from last year, so maybe go somewhere else, go to a different pub, perhaps. Okay, right. Visit the mural again. I think there's a new mural, maybe a Jack Revolt mural somewhere. What if the mural was the thing that you need to break? Oh. Did you go see the mural the year that they won? That wasn't there the year they won. Okay. Yeah, so it came, or maybe it was 
Oh, no, I don't think it was. Mm. I know. So it's exciting. You've got to uh, figure out your... Yeah, what your thing is. I know. Mm. So this is going to be good. So we're just trying to, like, we need a new, we need a new tour of Richmond. But, uh, yeah, we haven't worked it out. I don't want to linger. You don't want to linger outside Punt Road because that's a bit creepy. So you just go on a walking tour through Richmond? Yeah, maybe a walking tour, have a drink, visit some sites that are well known to the Richmond (laughs) Tigers Club. Well... As a new resident of Richmond. Yes. yes. I'm very excited. I think there is a mural near where I am. And I w- wandered around Richmond when Tigers won the first grand final and they, uh, I was around Swan Street and I, my, I heard the theme song uh, and a trumpeter doing the theme song about 30 times. <laughs> I was like, we need more songs. But, uh, but yeah, I am, I am a new resident and I spent my first night in my new, uh, apart, uh, my new house uh, in Richmond, and I'm just learning everything about the place. I don't know where any of the light switches are. I'm stumbling around the dark. There are stairs. Uh, <gasps> it's there's it's much colder than I expected at night. It's free. heating. It, well, they haven't turned it on yet. You haven't turned. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. I, I don't want to sleep with the heater on. I mean, yes, I will, I... but the, the, it, there's bad insulation, and mm. and now I'm like, oh god, I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna. You should have listened. I don't want to say this, but your dad didn't warn you. And I'm going to have to d- d- drag out my dorky pyjamas. I'm so nervous about, like, there being a burglar. I, like, go downstairs in these – I look like a toddler. Why would you get – why don't you get new pyjamas? Well, I'm, I, th- I feel like there's something infantilising about most pyjamas. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Garrett, yeah, any kind of pyjamas, yeah. you're, you're going to look like a toddler. Yeah, PJs, <laughs> you're tr- that's so true, isn't it? Unless you've got um, those uh, – when you fly business class with Qantas and you get those grey pyjamas. Yes. Yeah. They're the elite pyjamas because it comes with, you know, status. Why don't you get them or some silk pyjamas? Well, I might do that, exactly. But then you're hot in bed. I don't know. It's it, all of these teething issues I'm working out and oh. there's no, there's still no, you know, like you still have to get takeaway every night. So I picked up dinner again last night and had a, because I'm trying to explore the area, which I, I know Richmond, but I want it, I'm going to learn it properly. It's mm. not just explore. You're trying, you're making friends, which I love with your new establishments. Yeah. Mm. Well, I went into a restaurant to get some food and the, uh, the, the uh, staff there were like, I don't know what it is about me, but they kept like, giving me free drinks. What is it? I feel like that you've. The, what? Are you? How engaging are you? Yeah, you oh. come in, you order something, and then you just then you don't happens? just sit there on your phone, obviously. No, no. And there was a, some guy wanted it on his phone, and you could tell the hostility of this people <gasps> who are disengaged and walking around like zombies. Really, I think he just appreciated that I was present and chatting. And he's from, you know, he's a. Immigrant from Venezuela, and he was talking to me all That's about fascinating. the state. Yeah, the state of oh. Venezuela. And did you tell him that you were a new resident of the area? Oh, uh, in, in further in. Okay, but, but that that definitely That's cemented not, the friendship. You, so it wasn't your, a, it wasn't a bribe. It wasn't no, a, oh, you're new resident. No, resident. Yeah. Ah. no. Although it worked, if it was. <laughs> What's your opening line? Like, do you have? Uh, hello, one? I'd like to order some food. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I don't have. I mean, d- dad's a. D- my dad has this opening line that when someone asks how are you, he says all the better for you having asked. Oh ah. yes, and I. But it just throws people. Oh, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> exactly. No, because oh, okay, you're hearing all, and it's like all, and then yeah. it's all the, and it's like all the what, and then all the better. It's like I'm so confused. And yeah. For you. Oh, what? What about me? <laughs> having? Having what? What do I have? Asked? Oh, what? And so people freak out, and it never works. 
So I need to, but I. But do you do it as well? I've done it occasionally. Yeah, I've done it occasionally. <laughs> Not on the Venezuelan oh. though. I just love the idea that, yeah, you just sit and have a chat and they end up giving you free. That's two, what, that's twice That's this week. twice. I really want to witness what, I, I really want to know what it is about your charisma in those oh, moments. But it, that gets you a free beer. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they they just want company. Maybe I look like, I mean, I like propping up at a bar. Okay, right. As yeah. well. I mean, that's, I mean, maybe what do you I mean just by give off that at, vibe. What do you mean by propping just up at a bar? Just sitting at the bar. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's you know the whole place every yeah everything's very new and I have no idea you know key there are eleven keys to this apartment oh, eleven too many oh. get change the locks make it one yes change all the locks that is such a good idea yeah I'm gonna change the locks what are you so I'm just thinking about what kind of, do you say been a busy night oh my god you're going back to this been aren't a busy you? night no no I mean it was very early in the night. Uh, it was they borderline probably shouldn't have even been open. Did you order so early? Did you order a beer, or did they just give you one? Did they volunteer it and say, "Do you want a beer?" Uh, no, I they they asked if I wanted a glass of wine, and I said yes. And you know, then he gave me another one, and uh, ah, but it's yeah, and I love you know, it. Yeah, I don't know. I it's, love it how you've gone from one neighbourhood where they give you, you know, you get to know the the local. <laughs> restaurants and you get free drinks and then night one night one night <laughs> one i'm so impressed out and about yeah amongst it but i'm worried about saying this on uh on air because obviously jesse my partner's back home unpacking boxes oh. <laughs> <laughs> hello jesse <laughs> Uh, maybe, um, yeah, we'll, we'll text you the details of where you can get free drinks <laughs> yeah, exactly. if you just prop yourself up at the bar. Uh, but, yeah, I hopefully, I just didn't know that moving out into a new place would take so long. Like, it's, there's yes, like... Yes, you were very naive. I'm yeah, totally it, naive. Yeah. I was so stressed for you last week when you were just kind of going, oh, who should, like, who should I get to do the move? And I thought, you've... It's happening in like yeah, 48 yeah, hours. Yeah. And, and you know, but there are these tiny victories that no one, like I put together a table last night. Oh, and by the way, a television. So I've got this television. God knows. I, God knows how to set it up. It's so confusing. And Woody what Allen. plugging it in. Well, I, I can, uh, got, I can get the television and the antenna. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. But if I wanted the amp and the damn speakers and all this crap. Oh, yes. oh. Yeah, right. Like uh, Woody Allen has a typewriter and he does he still doesn't know how to replace the ribbon. So he invites friends over for dinner and then while they're here, it's like, oh, yeah, the ribbon and the typewriter. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to have to get a technician in. Oh. I'm going to have to make friends with one of uh, okay. TV repairmen. <laughs> <laughs> Just get that in. Triple. With the climate strike today, who better than our next guest to explore the intricacies and efficacy of activism? Sally Rugg is the executive director of Change.org and former Get Up campaign director whose book How Powerful We Are, behind the scenes with one of Australia's leading activists, chronicles her involvement in the successful same-sex marriage plebiscite. And she joins us now. Sally, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me. I really hope no one thought you were about to introduce Greta Thunberg. (laughs) (laughs) Sally Next. Uh, What compelled you to go on the record with this book? Oh, wow. Um, Well, 
the basically, the, I mean, the long story. I'll um, I'll show you the long story. Basically, I was in Parliament uh, the week before marriage equality passed uh, into law, um, and it was this culmination of decades of incredible work, um, and certainly sort of like ten to fifteen years of really concerted activism on this issue um, and the the law was going to change in sort of like 48 hours and I was in Parliament House surrounded by some of the most powerful people in the country and I just watched in real time as the story of how we got there was completely rewritten. Um, you know, the people in the press gallery, political staff members, politicians, all these people were talking about how Malcolm Turnbull had delivered marriage equality via a postal survey. Um, and it was just like all of all of our incredible work was being paved over so that the government could perform this victory lap um, mm. as some sort of like generous, benevolent mm. leaders who have finally decided to give us our rights. And it really matters to me, not because I'm interested in, um, you know, assigning credit or, um, you know, apportioning glory or whatever, but I think it's really important that we know what we did as a society, what we did as the Australian public to achieve that reform because it was extraordinary mm. and I think it's really important that we can do it again. So I've tried to – I wrote a book about it um, to sort of capture some of the truth um, but also there's kind of like a handbook. So if people do want to replicate that sort of mass social movement, um, and I do hope that they do, um, that uh, people can sort of learn from our triumphs and, um, and our mistakes and, and how it all went down. Mm. And you, you were in Parliament for the passage – of the amendment. Um, how did that moment bring you closer to Christina Aguilera? <laughs> Not close enough. <laughs> um, but I suppose we can legally wed now. So that's, that's one thing. No, I just, you know, I really reflected on um, her song Fighter, you know, thanks for making me a fighter. I don't know, I sort of came to the end of that survey um, yeah, the survey in particular, which was, I mean, we were all there. It was pretty shit. Mm. Um, and just sort of like weathering criticism and homophobic advertising from, you know, every airwave and um, television station in the country and um, all the conflict and horror <laughs> that brought us to that day. And I, you know, as I was watching the bill pass, I did feel a little bit stronger, a little bit wiser. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, though, that um, <clears throat> part of the reason of writing the book is also to just show the toll that it did take on on the LGBTIQ community? Um, like it's, you know, we've come out of it and we, it, yeah, it's kind of, we survived it, I guess. And I, I think you Some talk, of us did. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Like it did take a toll and I think um, people kind of forget how traumatic that time was for us. Yeah. And I think if we just gloss over what happened, then the ends will always justify the means. And I think it is really important that we hold to account the means by which we operate as a society. And so, um, you know, I believe that subjecting a minority group in society to a national popular opinion poll on their worthiness as human beings under the law. Like, I think that that is bad practice. I think that, 
you know, the means to an end, uh, you know, that is not something that we should do. And so um, I've tried to capture some of the real human cost of that process because we know, I mean, we know that the survey cost $122 million um, and, and, you know, I've written a book and I'm not going to be able to actually quantify the, the true human cost of that. But, I mean, I see it everywhere. I see it... Um, you know, in the ongoing mental health problems and people of people I love, you know, my friends and people in the community, I see it in broken families who are forced into like the red corner and the blue corner and to battle it out based mm. on, you know, how they feel about gay marriage. What? Um, and and we know that there are people who didn't make it through the process. Um, and I, I don't want those people to be forgotten so that Malcolm Turnbull can be thanked for giving us our marriage rights. Mm. What did that moment in history teach you about the nature of Australia? Well, it was, it was less that moment and more that my five years working on the campaign. I think um, Australians, uh, you know, so to speak, um, can be a really generous people. Um, the, the reason why we achieved marriage equality in the end was part, was obviously to do with the LGBTIQ community working really, really hard for a really long time. But the reason why it reached critical mass and we actually forced this hostile government to um, pass the reform is because we were surrounded by allies and we were surrounded by straight and cisgender people who were like, eh, this doesn't affect me, but it does affect my kid, my neighbour, my colleague, whatever it is. Um, and so... What I think marriage equality teaches all of us about, you know, what the Australian public are capable of is, is I think that we are capable of um, empathy and solidarity and going that extra mile for our friends and neighbours and I think that was a real triumph of the process. Mm. I think a part of when you're talking in the book about um, being an activist and having achievable outcomes and having to kind of pivot to to, find, to, to decide what you're what you want to achieve. So once the ballot was announced, you had to go, we're going to achieve this and we want to get the the most people voting yes as possible. When I look at something like the climate action strike today, and I talk to friends about it, some people feel really overwhelmed. We know that a majority of Australians want action on, on climate change right now in the same way that we knew the majority of Australians for a long time supported same-sex marriage. How, as an activist, do you communicate something that feels tangible um, to the Australian people when they're going to these protests and they're taking this action? Because that's a really big part of being an activist. Totally. I mean, I'll just pick up on something you said then. You said, oh, you know, heaps of people feel really overwhelmed by this problem. You know, like the majority of people want a really urgent action uh, from the government on climate change, um, but feel really overwhelmed at this huge problem. And I just wanted to call that out because that feeling of of despair and um, anxiety and um, helplessness that like that is not a, a inherent flaw in each of us that is something that is deliberately engineered um, institutions of power whether it is the government whether it is you know big corporations the media the police the church all these big institutions of power they want us to cower in front of them and feel like we cannot challenge the status quo. It is in the interests of the fossil fuel company and the government to make us feel like we we don't have any mm. power to change this. Um, the good news is that we do, as citizens, have the power 
um, to force our government to take action on climate change. And the coolest thing, you asked me about what, what someone might communicate at a protest or whatever, the coolest thing is that as we feel despair and um, and anguish, it's like none of us actually have to solve climate change. We already have the solutions. Other people have figured that out for us. Um, the solutions are right there. We need to stop uh, burning fossil fuels. We need to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere. Um, if we wanted to, we could also bring some carbon out of the atmosphere by planting more trees and stop cutting them down. But it's, you know, we, we have these solutions. And so if I, you know, if I was communicating to people about climate change it would just um be like don't don't let that feeling of despair overwhelm you Mm -hmm. because there are people all around you who are taking action on climate change the solutions are right there um and and all we need to do is use the the structures of democracy that already exist around us um but properly engage with them so that our political leaders understand that prolonged inaction on climate change is a political death sentence. And that's because that's how we achieved marriage equality in the end. The the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government, I mean, Morrison came in afterwards, but the Tony Abbott-Malcolm uh, Turnbull government did not want to pass marriage equality, mm. but they did so because they understood that not uh, delivering the reform was going to be political poison. They were like, we got to do it, otherwise people are going to vote us out. And so we need to, as a as a population, we need to recreate those exact same political, uh, that political scenario. You mentioned the uh, distinction between, say, Australia's uh, proclivity for fairness versus maybe the US bias for freedom. How does that play out in um, massaging, uh, you know, activist messages? Yeah, sure. I mean, so in you're referring to a chapter I, um, uh, I'm writing, I think that's about frames. It's either about, or maybe so this is about how words work. This is a chapter about how different words um, work in our minds and how we can... Um, uh, you use words to sort of like elicit an emotion or describe mm. an action or, um, uh, you know, imbue value to something. Uh, and so I talk about how in, in the United States they, you know, in the United States they love freedom. Freedom is like a really inherent cultural value there um, for, for various reasons that I we probably don't have time to go into today, but they love they love freedom. That's why you can't take their guns away from them because they they it's their freedom. Um, whereas that that sense of sort of individual freedom and liberty, like it doesn't really translate to an Australian context. And I believe that like there's several reasons for that. Um, and one of them I think is because we've got really great public systems. So like we don't want freedom from Medicare, for instance. We really like our sort of socialism light health system system um, and we're also still like you know part of the Commonwealth all this sort of stuff um, but in Australia the 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 word and the concept that really resonated during the marriage campaign is fairness because most people understand the concept of fairness and that's why you hear po- politicians always talk about a fair go and all that sort of stuff so yeah we we had research from other countries telling us what worked over there but you can't just copy and paste stuff from other cultures into mm. ours and uh you know you've you've you rub shoulders with power players <laughs> you've now written a memoir at a, a, a ripe age um what what seat do you think you'll run in no <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, the, the thing is, you see, like you just mentioned my ripe age. So I'm 30. Um, and I first got a MySpace when I was like 15 or something. And before that, you... Before that, there was another one. We had digital cam- Basically, like, I have grown up my entire life online. And, and all people my age have. So, like, the you know, the first time I got drunk at a party underage or, like, all the terrible haircuts I've had or... You know, just it's like, all there. It's, it's all, all there. there. Oh my god! Was it Friendster? Yes. <laughs> Were you on Friendster? Fred, no, I don't oh, know Friendster. Right. Okay, sorry. Um, right, our old man. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, that, this is a blank no, look. No, no, no. Um, so, what seat would I run in? Look, it would have to be when the the electorate, the broad electorate, uh, like understand that some of us have lived our entire lives online. Um, and would need to be, you know, really ready for some daggy costumes at costume parties <laughs> and, like, silly Facebook comments from when I'm 16. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. The era you were going to raves, 2000. Yeah, 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 yeah yes. <laughs> well, Sally Rugg, Executive Director of Change.org and former Get Up Campaign Director, his uh, new book, How Powerful We Are, Behind the Scenes, with one of Australia's leading activists, is out now through Hatchet. Uh, just if any uh, anything that we've talked about has brought anything up for you, the number for Lifeline is thirteen eleven fourteen, and also the number for Switchboard is one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. Melbourne's own Triple R. Stuart is here, you're on time and under budget to deliver us our Friday funny bug of goodness. Hi, Matt. Hey, Daniel, Hi. thanks so much for noticing I came in under budget. <laughs> you're having a good hair day too. Yeah. Well, it's a texture and height. I've been mm. getting a lot of compliments about my hair lately, which has never happened before. It's a, it's a good cut. You've got a good mullet um, and, yeah, good on top. And, yeah, it's a nice cut. Hey, I feel like I was somewhat inspired by you, Jess. So thank you so much. Oh, oh what an honour. Thank you. <laughs> I I saw you last night uh, uh, at the Cooper's Inn. Yes, I, I just, you were doing. You just finished your show. Yeah, which makes uh, this appearance on the radio very perfectly timed. Uh, I can plug you the festival I just finished. Oh yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Please do come along. <laughs> um, no, I had a great fun time. You had a good time at yours as well, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I did. I did three nights of my show and had a yeah, great run. And then I saw a, another show. I didn't see your show. Sorry. Um, no. I saw another friend's show on at the same time. But yeah, had a great time. Well, you missed your chance. I did, didn't I? I? I had a great time as well. We did eight shows, and seven of them were so fun. And one of them was a real big dud. But um, <laughs> in what I, way? It was just like there were people there, but it. You could only tell they were there from looking at them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is there something in my ears? Or... <laughs> when one of the one of the audience members leave, they were leaving. I always go to the door and say goodbye as people leave. And I'm saying, thanks so much for coming. And one guy goes, hey, hey thanks for doing the show. I said, yeah, a bit of a weird vibe. And he goes, oh, I've seen other shows at this venue that were way worse. <laughs> Like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really do appreciate She's that. She's ranking them. Yeah. 
That same night, that was uh, one of the very few times that someone's told me that they, um, they've they heard me on Triple R. So I was like, yeah. oh. I'm like, oh, that's cool, but I wish you came on a different night. <laughs> <laughs> the other time I was in Thailand at a podcast festival, so pretty wild. Mm. Yeah. So, And I do forget that anyone's listening. Was it just a random person walking past? <laughs> yeah, just a random Thai local yeah. listening online. Okay. No, no it, was, it was someone there from the from Melbourne, I think. Oh, right. yeah. How long are you at the door saying goodbye? Uh, depends on how bad the show goes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and do, do you greet people as they come in, or just as they leave? Just as they leave. <laughs> oh, oh, you go. You greet them on the way in. Uh, yeah, I used to, um, and I liked greeting them on the way in because it sets. Um, makes them realise that you're human. Right. Like oh, I'm, that's I'm really here. I exist. And it, I think it. there's a slight guilt, uh, a kind of, you know, slightly guilt them into to laughing later on. Because oh, they're like, smart. oh, you're the nice lady that I met at the door. The first time I went to one of Jess's shows and she was greeting everyone, I was like, oh, hi, Jess. And I tried to get a selfie and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> Did I? I? Realized, yeah. I think oh, I realised yeah. it wasn't time to stop and talk. Yeah. I just thought, I was like, have a chat in. to Jess. She's like, just go into the room. Have a seat. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> See, she's human. Yeah. You would have really understood that. And then if it's a good show, then I'll certainly be there right. to greet people. Yeah. That, Playing the vicar, as they call it. I feel like um, it's... On a good show, that's my reward. Mm. So I get to shake people's hands. And yeah. on a bad show, that's my punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't thought about greeting them on the way in. I feel like at least afterwards, they know what's happened. Beforehand, yes. people were being nice to me. I couldn't handle seeing them be real nice and happy on the way in. <laughs> and then like sad and depressed on the way out. Oh. I'm like, I did that. But if, <laughs> if they're leaving sad, I can assume that that's just how they yeah. arrived. Yeah. <laughs> There was a Canadian couple who came as well last night, and they we chatted for a while after the show, and they were they were asking me for tips on what to do in Melbourne, oh. and I really struggled. I couldn't. I what do oh. you tell people? It's I'm like, oh, I'll go see some live music. Go to the MCG. I yeah. never know. They are they're, they're, they're doing that. They bought the finals four pack, so they got a ticket for each thirteen thirteen hundred. Oh my god! Each, and you get to go to a game each week. They're going tonight. What if they don't like it? Yeah. Our footy sucks. Yeah. Oh. He, he was wearing a West Coast Eagles jumper. Oh. So I don't know how that, how does that come about? I oh. guess the reigning premiers. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of a bandwagon jumper. Oh, yeah. Those. What a bad bandwagon yeah. to get on. You should go to the MCG and say goodbye to them on the way out. Yeah. It's really freaking them out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. It's, uh, hopefully you enjoyed the game. <laughs> So what? It, what else did you tell them to do? Well, they're going. To, they're going to do the MCG tour. Oh yeah, yeah that's fun. Um, I've they, done that. They did the S- SCG one and said it was real boring because they just talked about cricket, which they don't understand at all. But they know a bit about footy. Okay. I, f- I figure the MCG one would do a fair bit of footy, especially they go yeah. grand final week. Yeah, absolutely, a lot of footy. There's also there's also like a sports um, museum in there as well. Right. So all different kinds of things. And because the Olympics was there, so mm. they got good variety. Not like yes. the SCG, you know, those clowns up there <laughs> in the sunshine. I don't think the Olympics were at the MCG. Really? I think they were at Olympic Park. Oh, that does make sense. <laughs> Now that you mention it, maybe they were at multiple places. Did you, did you sell it to them with the Olympics line? I'd said, yeah, the, I, I, at least they, I'm sure, oh, no, you're right. I thought they'd ran around the outside, but no, they would have done that at Olympic Park. Mm. That means I've run at, at an Olympic venue. There you go. My school sports were at Olympic Park. 
so it pretty was cool. used in the Olympics. Oh, there you go. See, yeah. everyone's right. The oh. main, the main stadium. <laughs> That's I, uh, why there's an Olympic room at the MCG. Thanks, Google. Oh, that makes sense. I'm yeah. so jealous of you, Sarah, being a, a football supporter of a good team. Oh, mate, 30 years of being a supporter of not a good team. It just, it's kind of mind-boggling. Although you haven't, you had your moment. It just didn't quite. Get yeah, there. we were close. Yeah, and we, yeah. So that that's true. I think you, you, it comes in rotations. We'll get another shot. I'll be down the bottom again, and frankly, I'm probably more comfortable at the bottom. <laughs> Are you you like thinking about it all the time? I've got to appreciate these moments. Oh, constantly, constantly. I keep turning around to my friends at the footy and go, can you actually believe <laughs> yeah. we're at finals and it's not depressing? Wow. Yeah. It's exciting. Oh, it's you're, so exciting. You, you'd be the favourite still at this point. Don't say that. Okay. You can't talk about us <laughs> as being favourites, yes. But yeah, yeah. I said to the Canadians that the, the best result for them would be Collingwood Richmond because that would just be oh, yeah, electric. Victoria will get torn apart. Yeah. And I love seeing the anger of everyone who doesn't go for Collingwood and Richmond because they're two dislikable teams because they're so big. I, I, I love that as well. People the, the are. Despite that people will be furious. feeling for a yeah. Richmond Pies no grand final. Are you finding more people are hating yeah. Richmond now? And it's really funny. It used to be everyone's second favourite team. Tigers, my second favourite team. Mm. Until you win. Yeah. And yeah. then everyone's like, oh, you're so up yourselves. I'm like, we just win now. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone loves the. There are, you go on about every, it. Every team has supporters that are bad when they're losing and bad when they're winning. So yeah, but when yeah, you're yeah. winning, all of a sudden they come out of the woodwork and your your whole supporter base looks bad. I just think everyone's bad. All supporters are bad and they're not going for your team. Yeah, that, you know? that may be true. Apart from me, I'm a very good supporter. <laughs> I went to the Saints Best and Fairest last week. <gasps> oh, my God. As a, as a date of Goxie, uh, who's a, a Aaron comedian, Gox. Aaron yeah. Gox. Oh, my God. So he had a plus one. He was actually meant to perform um, throughout the night, comedy, and then um, when Spud passed away, it was Aww. the vibe of the night changed a lot. So all that got cancelled. So we ended up just going to watch. And I was, it was like? pretty amazing. Well, the first 20 or so minutes was tributes to Frawley. And it was, you know, I was on the edge of crying. It feels like I can't cry anymore. If I'm not crying then, I don't know when I'll cry. Because it mm. was, you could feel it. It was pretty uh, wild feeling. Um, and then they sort of said, oh, but... He would want us to celebrate the team this year and then the rest of the night was sort of went that way. I met a few players. Who did you meet? I met Bruce, uh, Josh <gasps> Battle, Tim Membry. He's my favourite player, current I, day. I think we He's all no re- Frankie Packer, but... I, I think we all remember uh, how well um, you meeting famous people generally goes. Oh. How, how did you... How was the interaction I've between you to- and the fo- your hero footballers? Uh, was, yeah, to be honest, it was similar. Um, to, <laughs> when I met Josh Battle... <laughs> So he was talking to Goxie, and I'm just standing there, third wheeling it. Yeah. And then, and he he felt that after a little bit, and and Josh goes, "Oh hi, I'm Josh." I said, "Hi, Josh, I'm Matt." You used to be my bank password. No! <laughs> so it was what um, an honour. <laughs> it was like, oh no, I said so much so quickly. Yeah. And, and he goes, he was like trying to keep it cool, and he goes. Oh, you, oh, used to be. Yeah. He, goes, he goes, that's an honour, but used to be. And I'm like, oh, actually, Josh, security experts say you should always rotate your passwords. <laughs> and I think that was pretty much the end of the interaction. Was, it, was the O a zero or anything? Or? Sorry? Was the O a zero? Or did you mix it up with letters and numbers? Yeah, I, look, I didn't tell him too much, but of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, you changed the A to a four. Everyone does that. Oh, I have said too much now. <laughs> It's basic personalised number plate rules. <laughs> yeah, that was, but it was so, it was really cool. It's funny to go in and 
much like you at the comedy, realizing that they're real people. You know what I mean? You go, oh, yeah, you're just kind of like dorky. real dorky kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even though you're like a foot taller than me. You're, um, <laughs> yeah, they're just uh, little little boys. <laughs> In the bodies of men. <laughs> well, Matt Stewart. <laughs> well, uh, well, what a rollercoaster. <laughs> really, when you hit that spud territory for a moment, yeah, I'm like, oh, this oh, is on brand. Friday yeah. fan bugger. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. 